Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Narjos Flores. Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we will be discussing oligometastatic lung cancer and the treatment alternatives with local therapy. We are pleased to have Dr. Daniel Gomez from Memorial Sloan Catherine. Dr. Gomez is the Director of Thoracic Radiation Oncology, Vice Chair of Clinical Operations in the Department of Radiation Oncology. He specializes in the treatment of lung cancer, mesothelioma, and esophageal cancer. Dr. Gomez was the principal investigator in a study of oligometastatic lung cancer that changed practice forever, and we're delighted to have you here. Welcome, Dr. Gomez. Thank you very much, Dr. Flores. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. As Dr. Gomez and I know each other, we're going to be referring each other by first name. So, Daniel, let's discuss oligometastatic lung cancer. Over the years, the definition has changed, but I believe the consensus is five to eight and usually limited to two organs out of the thorax. How will you define oligometastatic lung cancer to our patients and to our audience? Well, NJ, you know, that, that is a great question. It's one that's constantly evolving. In reality, the definitions do vary, but there are two recent guidelines that have shed some light on this topic. And really, there are a couple of ways that we could define this entity. The first is the number of sites. This is typically in trials defined as five or less, but you'll see it anywhere from one to 10, believe it or not. Uh, and so number of lesions or number of sites is, a, is one way to define this. In addition, I think I should note that there are a number of different categories within the oligometastatic umbrella that really can make your head spin. There is synchronous versus metachronous. There's oligoprogression, which is disease that begins as oligomet or begins as polymetastatic, so non-oligometastatic, and then progresses in only a small number of sites, typically one to three. There's then induced oligoprogression which is begins as polymetastatic or induced oligometastasis, I should say induced oligometastasis, that begins as polymetastatic and then transitions to oligometastatic and oligopersistent, which is polymetastatic disease that resolves other than a small number of sites. So these are some examples of other categories within oligometastasis and uh, gives you a taste of the, uh, the variety of definitions that it can occur. And in turn, the variety of biologic behavior that we may observe when we attempt to effectively treat this disease. 
that is is very good for me to like at least have a sense and you know to argue with my thoracic oncologist or no argue but just to have a conversation <laughs> I'm, a very, I'm a very big fan of the treatment of oligometastatic lung cancer a lot of my patients have you know target mutations and this has been very helpful so but there are other concepts daniel that also you know we talk about it and as oligopersistent disease. And you mentioned briefly about oligoprogressive disease. Do you see these two entities, oligopersistent and an oligoprogressive as different? And what is the difference in the therapeutic approach between both of this? Yeah, uh, excellent question. And it's probably not surprising that given how many categories there are uh, of oligometastases, there have not yet been studies that have addressed all of the scenarios in the categories that I described uh, a minute ago. Another thing to point out is that there are no phase three studies that have been published. The highest level data comes in the form of randomized phase two trials that typically have had about 100 patients or less. That being said, of the major studies that have been published at this point, most have demonstrated a benefit in synchronous oligometastatic disease. So that's disease that's oligometastatic at presentation, so a limited number of metastases at presentation, and then patients are randomized to either receive aggressive therapy with radiation or surgery or not. So that's where the, the bulk of our data exists. However, there's also been a recent phase two randomized trial at MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I'm a, a faculty member, um, that uh, will likely be published soon, demonstrating a significant benefit with radiation therapy in the context of oligoprogressive disease. So as I mentioned before, this is disease that starts out as polymetastatic, and therefore, one could hypothesize that the benefit uh, may or may not exist to the same extent in these patients. However, the results are interesting because it does suggest a benefit, and this study does suggest a benefit in an entirely different disease state, one that begins as polymetastatic. So, overall, it could be that that local consolidation, which is surgery or radiation or any ablative therapy in the setting of metastatic disease could have a benefit in all of the settings in the categories I described above, or that some of these will not extrapolate to a larger scale in contemporary trials. I'm going to ask you a question or a reference that I often use, and this is the perfect time, you know, a podcast that thousands of people will listen to show if you are wrong or not. So when I have oligoprogressive disease, so these are patients that present with polymetastatic disease, diffuse disease, then they have a response to systemic therapy for a while, and then one lesion kind of becomes the trouble lesion. And I work with mostly radiation oncology, and we radiate that lesion that is, you know, progressive in a setting in which most of the systemic disease is controlled. I call this the dandelion approach. You and I moved northeast, but prior, we probably used to have a yard. When I was at Mayo, I had 
yard and deal with dandelions, right? So if you pull the dandelion, the dandelion will come back eventually, but you don't see it for a while, so it doesn't bother you for a while. So this, you know, radiating that lesion that is growing with the rest of the systemic disease is under control, I call the dandelion approach. Like I pull it, it may come back later, but it won't be a problem for a while. Is this the right analogy to use, Daniel? And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's a very uh, interesting and uh, and uh, appropriate uh, description of, of, of many cases that we treat like this. I prefer to call it the whack-a-mole approach because we oh. do something similar where we, uh, when something comes up, we treat it and then we wait a while see if it, uh, if anything else comes up and consider treating that. And we can, we can persist on this course for years. And actually this, this could be the most uh, common reason for referral uh, in this general indication. It's because patients come in, they're doing very well on a systemic therapy regimen. Um, either they progressed in one lesion or everything looks pretty good and there's only a couple of areas active. And the goal is to try to maintain them on a well-tolerated and otherwise effective regimen for as long as we can. And so we treat, we then image. And again, sometimes this is six months, 12 months, even later down the road. And we see another lesion arise or progress, and we treat that. And the patient's quality of life is maintained. In addition, this is a cost-effective therapy, and the patient can maintain on this regimen that is otherwise doing uh, well without switching to some potentially more uh, sophisticated or, um, or involved uh, treatment regimen. So uh, I think that this is a, a very... A clinically meaningful uh, indication to patients, even though it doesn't fit necessarily into one of our, uh, our our major survival buckets. All right, so that's a great explanation. It also shows that I was not allowed to play video games, and I needed to work with my abuelita <laughs> in the garden, um, <laughs> and that's how I came out with the dandelion because that was my job. <laughs> right. <laughs> growing it like that was the job pull the dandelions with the abuelita so moving uh forward with the discussion now that we have defined oligometastatic lung cancer we know that local therapies for these patients have a role and this includes radiation cryoablation or surgery daniel when when is the best time to provide local therapy with radiation for these patients prior to starting systemic therapy, after, if so, when? Right. Yeah, NJ, that, 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 that's, a, that's a great point. And, uh, and another uh, excellent question that I think that we've yet to fully answer. So some studies, such as the one that we conducted at MD Anderson, suggested that earlier consolidation is, is better than later consolidation. In this trial, uh, what we found was an overall survival improvement, even though patients could cross over to the other arm. So on further analysis, we found that survival after progression was improved in the arm that received earlier surgery or radiation. 
Thus, the implication was that local therapy is not as feasible uh, in terms of total ablation after progression. So one could take these data to imply that earlier the better. However, it's important to point out that in all of the randomized phase two trials published thus far in lung cancer, patients have been given some systemic therapy prior to local consolidation to obtain systemic control prior to implementing local therapy. The rationale is, is of course, that in addition to the existing disease uh, uh, that is a threat to uh, progression and survival, an equally, if not more substantial um, risk is, the, is microscopic disease that can further seed. Therefore, systemic therapy allows us to control that disease uh, initially and then to come in and, and consolidate, as the name implies, to disease that, that, that we can currently appreciate on imaging. Now, moving local consolidation to the complete upfront sending before the delivery of any local therapy has not been yet supported by any data on lung cancer to this point. I think that's a very important point because, you know, as a medical oncologist, a lot of my patients ask me in the metastatic setting, the polymetastatic setting, can we get it out? Can we radiate it? And it is important to remember that systemic control is important for these local control therapies, um, not only because it would give us an idea where the resistant clone may be, but also will this be beneficial? So to this question, we can say that most of the data comes in patients that have systemic therapy uh, prior to the local consolidation. Would that be correct to say? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, patients do ask. I've had patients come in to see me uh, asking, I think appropriately so, why they cannot get radiation up front. And so I explained it essentially by, by discussing that there are two major reasons. The first is a biologic rationale. Uh, lung cancer with metastatic disease uh, has a high risk of uh, developing life-threatening disease due to systemic progression, due to spread of disease. Therefore, prioritizing systemic control prior to implementing local therapy like surgery or radiation has a biologic basis. The second reason is empirical. Uh, and that is that the studies up to this point, and particularly the randomized trials, have demonstrated a benefit with local consolidation after a period of systemic therapy. So at this point, following this approach is the more data-driven uh, measure to take. And I most agree with you. So we use a lot of these therapy in patients that have targetable mutations, EGFR, lung cancer, ALK cancer. And these diseases, unfortunately, are very trophic for the brain. So delaying systemic therapy can potentially, you know, increase the risk of having CNM, CNS metastasis that may have not been present at diagnosis because we delay the therapy or because, you know, we pursued an other approach and the morbidity and outcomes when CNS metastases are present is very different. So I 100% agree point. with you. 
That's an excellent point. Yes. Um, so associated with this question, a little bit outside of what we are planning to talk next is radiation with targeted therapy. Um, is there a time frame that you feel more comfortable? Is it before, after the first set of CT scans or after two sets of CT scans in which we can confirm that there is systemic disease control? Yeah, so there, are, I think there are, first of all, the, the, this is another uh, question about timing that hasn't yet fully been answered through uh, current data and particularly randomized data. I think clinically the approach that we take is that there are a couple of, uh, of appropriate times that could be rationalized in which to deliver or integrate radiation into a targeted therapy regimen. The first is when we have maximal, we think we've had maximal response. So we see the tumor responding on imaging, and then it plateaus, and we no longer see uh, a response uh, continue. In that case, it can be surmised that we've reached the maximum response on this given agent, and therefore integrating a, a consolidative treatment would then supplement the effect that it's had. The second is if a patient is on treatment, but then starts to not tolerate it and wants to come off treatment for some time, um, at that point, if integrating local consolidation therapy would allow them to come off treatment, then we could consider at that time. And of course, at that point, if the disease is fully uh, able to, we can fully ablate the disease as well. And then finally, as we've mentioned before, uh, this would occur if we have a small number of sites of progression. So, uh, you know, if only uh, one to three sites have progressed, maybe one to five in, 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 in some outlying cases, at that point, we, uh, if the disease is otherwise well controlled in the setting of polymetastasis, can local consolidation provide that additional benefit to allow them to continue on this therapy? I have patients come in all of the or frequently at other times other than these three, and I and I do frequently discuss with them that uh, those are the three most uh, I think the most justified times to integrate local consolidation into their care. Thank you. I'm really enjoying this conversation, not only because of my learning, but just to expand the use of this approach. In your 2016 study, you show overall survival benefit for patients treated with definite therapy with oligometastatic disease. How do you see this data and how will you explain this data to our patients and our colleagues that are listening to this episode? Yeah. Um, we we're very excited by the results of this study, which was a product of several investigators, uh, not only at MD Anderson, but also at London Health Sciences Cancer Center in Ontario, as well as the University of Colorado. I would interpret the results of this study as follows. I would 
summarize it by saying that it demonstrated a substantial progression-free survival benefit in a randomized setting, which was novel data at the time. However, there are caveats to this data, including the relative small size of the study, uh, the fact that it was performed in an era prior to contemporary targeted agents and prior to the advent of immunotherapy, and that it was not powered to detect a difference in overall survival. Therefore, uh, what I explained to patients is that I would view these results as provocative and signal generating, but not definitive in nature due to those limitations. I think that's a very good point um, to break down how science has evolved over time. And, and is it crazy to think, Daniel, that this is in 2016? Um, it, it sounds recent, but it's like over seven years ago. <laughs> right. And in the world of lung cancer I'm, and what's happened in the past decade, um, it's amazing how, uh, how rapidly things have changed and how quickly uh, findings become uh, less uh, contextual with what with what the our current practice is. I feel you. I have to edit one of my current studies uh, just because of data that was presented at ESMO. So I'm like having <laughs> conversations with the IRB and I was like, we kind of knew, but we didn't know it was going to be that good. Right, and, right. And the <laughs> IRB is like, Mm, it's a full amendment. I was like, okay, there we go. <laughs> I mean, it's a good problem to have for a field to have developments recurring that rapidly, but it does make it difficult for investigators trying to conduct and design studies. <laughs> yeah, and there's always, right, the reviewer that says, but that is, doesn't apply to practice. I'm like, yeah, we designed this in 2013. Right. You know, Obama right. was still president. <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, going back to the subject, prior to radiation, what are the recommendations regarding holding chemotherapy or targeted therapy? Do you recommend to continue it, to hold it for a week, for hold it for three weeks? How long? Yeah, um, these are uh, outstanding um, queries that I'm hoping we can answer uh, much better over the next several years. So I would say that this recommendation at this point is dependent on several factors, uh, the systemic therapy being delivered, the field of radiation that we're, we're giving, how extensive it is, where it is, and really data surrounding the combination of the two modalities. I would say a general rule, I would say I would emphasize emphasis on general is that for standard cytotoxic systemic therapy, we often hold the regimen for one week prior to beginning radiation until one week after the end of treatment. For those containing a VEGF inhibitor, we, we typically hold for several weeks due to the risk of uh, esophageal and vascular uh, side effects. And this is particular when treating central mediastinal structures, of course. And then for targeted therapy and immunotherapy alone, we, we do consider continuing systemic therapy during radiation, but this is always a multidisciplinary discussion. And of course, there is more known about some targeted agents and immunotherapy agents than others. So 
it's it's I would say it's individualized. For targeted therapy, we will often continue treatment. Uh, though, you know, we 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 um, present to the patient the limitations in our knowledge about the combination of the two in terms of the data that, that exists. And it, it is very dependent on the radiation field and the dose that we're given. I think, in, you know, this question is a question that will continue because we're adding more agents and are even there to talk about antibody drug conjugates and when to hold those ones. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other, <laughs> a whole other box to, uh, to open. Uh, so... What are some of the patients that you wouldn't consider good candidates for consolidated radiation in the oligometastatic setting? It's a good question. I would say that any patient that isn't eligible for radiation therapy to uh, relatively high doses isn't a good candidate for consolidation therapy. So who are these patients? So there are patients whose comorbidities preclude treatment, who, those with poor functional status, um, those who have previously received radiation such that they're no longer candidates for this local therapy. Um, in addition, I would put a focus on, on goals of care for a particular patient um, in the context of these factors. So if the goal of care has been deemed and discussed with the patient uh, to be really uh, that of a of supportive in nature, and uh, it's thought that based on the disease status that the patient is likely to continue to recur rapidly after after the available systemic therapy regimens, then performing consolidation is likely outside of the uh, outside of the realm of what is realistic for a patient. So I think framing it in that context with the patient, what are the goals of care? You know, is this consolidation or should we re be reserving radiation for palliation? I think that's a very, a very good point. And also one of my concerns also comes to will radiation change the whole picture or we affect clinical trials in the future because sometimes we need a very long washout for clinical trials. So if we were thinking about the patient going a clinical trial, we should take that into account. If the radiation washout, you know, sometimes it's four to six weeks that right. it could be something to take into account. So just see patients um, as a whole, instead of just like, oh, we're gonna take care of this now um, and just forget about what may happen tomorrow. Right. So. My next question is a little bit controversial, but I need to ask because when we have the interview with surgery, we also ask the question. From your point of view, is surgery or radiation the preferred approach for consolidated therapy and oligometastatic disease after systemic control, systemic control with therapy? So I am a radiation oncologist. <laughs> that being said, I I put the emphasis on oncologist, and my most fruitful endeavors in oncology have been collaborations with my multi multidisciplinary colleagues. In the setting of oligometastasis, I feel strongly 
that since the fundamental aim of our treatment of local consolidation is to essentially eradicate disease, then we should use the best local therapy at our disposal. Sometimes that will be radiation, but in other patients, that will be surgery. And I think that as we change our frame of mind, as our systemic therapies get better, and the lens uh, with which we view this disease is analogous to that of locally advanced lung cancer, then we should be open to the options that best eradicate disease. There are certain scenarios where surgery has a benefit. Uh, In a patient where surgery can be well tolerated, the benefit of surgery is that we are able to obtain full pathologic specimens that can also give us a better sense of how the disease has responded to treatment and which may guide further therapies. There are patients where more limited surgery isn't possible or patients can't tolerate it, and radiation therapy is a great option in those cases. In addition, I found that, and I think that my multidisciplinary colleagues would echo, that hybrid approaches are a good option for a lot of patients where surgery is performed in some proportion of the, of the disease and radiation in the remainder and maybe interventional ablation in, in some as well. I think a key to moving the needle on this disease is to really leverage all of the local therapies that we have at our disposal and to individualize care and to uh, implement on any individual patient the local therapies that are most effective and have other benefits like toxicity in that particular patient. I love the response, and I think they should hire you from the Bates. That's a very, very good response. It covers everything. <laughs> it doesn't pick us up. I'm going to give a phone call to CNN. We need you there. Uh, for the debates next year. (laughs) So as we're coming to the end of our conversation, Daniel, what is inciting coming down the pipeline when it comes to the treatment of oligometastatic lung cancer? I think there are so many exciting developments that we're all going to be a part of over these next several years. Uh, And it gives me... uh, a lot of enthusiasm for the oncology community and for patients. So first, there are numerous clinical studies that are currently assessing the efficacy of local therapy with contemporary systemic agents that involve multiple institutions and ask provocative questions in a large number of patients. And they, they address many of these nuanced states of oligometastases to provide insight as to the differences in biologic behavior and the effect of local consolidation. In addition, on the other hand, on the flip side, they also, there are some of these trials that take a more broad-based view and determine whether the paradigms can be applied more broadly. So it's going to be really, uh, I think it's going to be really fascinating as we piece this, these data together to develop a picture as to where local consolidation is best. However, that's not all. 
<laughs> in parallel to all of these clinical trials, there's a line of research, research that's really diving into the question of biologically defining oligometastatic disease. So right now, as we talked about before, we're really, really primarily defined it by the number of lesions or number of metastatic sites. However, there's many of us that are asking the question of, can we identify patients who are eligible for local consolidation and have more indolent metastatic disease, not solely by using the number of metastatic lesions, which is a relatively crude measure, but are there differences in more tailored characteristics such as organs evolved, molecular makeup of tumors, or imaging characteristics that can essentially serve as biomarkers for true limited metastatic or indolent disease. There are uh, many investigators in the lung cancer community that are working on addressing these questions. And it's gonna be, uh, if I do uh, say so, really thrilling in the next several years in the scientific community and for our patients in terms of options available to them for treatment. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about what, what is to come. That is exciting. And something just to add to that is that the treatment of lung cancer has evolved and will continue to evolve. And we need to see patients individual, individually. And we shouldn't like sign up for something, the patient sign up for something and the pathway will be the same pathway. I think every set of CT scans is a new step reset what we do next because we are having these patients that are living long time and i'm a big believer bias aside of the terminal oligometastatic disease my younger women has significantly been benefit from this and i think it, it goes along with treating growing or challenging clones challenging symptoms and making the treatment or lung cancer, a multidisciplinary approach, regardless of the metastatic setting. Because before, you know, we have a radiation oncologist for the symptom or for the stage three, but now we need our teens in all phases of the treatment of our patients, from diagnosis to the end of the journey. I think that's a great point. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the disease has really transformed to multidisciplinary nature at each stage, at each, at each point. And I think that, that, that only can be a benefit to, patient, to patients to have uh, all disciplines involved. And just as a side joke, I was giving a talk to over 50 fellows uh, two days ago about biomarker testing and the biomarker drugs. And I just drop it, Daniel, it's happening. I say, back in my day, and I was like, oh, no, I'm saying this now. I'm saying it. It's me now. And I remember saying, well, back in my day when I was a fellow, there were three targets. And I was right. like, I hold myself. And I remember promising myself when I was a fellow, I'm never going to say back in my day. And here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Again, it's a good problem to have that in that, that amount of time we're all already talking about what what happened back in the day, way back in 2018. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I did make reference about Seinfeld to the medical students that didn't fly. So, 
<laughs> this this yeah. was a great discussion. Thanks, Dr. Gomez, for being so generous with your time. And of, of course, for all the work that you are doing and le being a leader in this field, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor to, to be here and it's been a really stimulating discussion. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to our episodes in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, islc.org, under Newsroom. Our podcast now has reached over 200,000 listens. So join in. Tune in regularly to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 